Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast Series. I'm Heather Horn. What do the SEC's new human capital disclosure rules mean for your filings? In this episode, you'll find out. PwC recently looked at more than 2,000 Form 10-K filings to understand what companies are disclosing, and we're going to talk through some of those trends. Joining me for this discussion are Sheree Wyatt, a PwC partner and the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Assurance Leader, along with Brandon Urie, a principal in our organization and workforce transformation group. They were guests back in January to discuss what companies should consider when incorporating the new rules, and they're back again to talk about what they saw coming out of the latest 10K reporting season. So Sheree and Brandon, so nice to have you both back and looking forward to learning a bit about what we saw during the 10K reporting season on these new human capital disclosures. And I know we did a whole podcast on this back in January, running through what the requirements are, but for our listeners who may not be focused on this every single day, Brandon, can you start things off with a quick reminder of what is now required? Absolutely, Heather. So companies are now required to disclose the number of employees they have in the business and a description of its human capital resources. Further, they're supposed to disclose any human capital measures or objectives that are material to an understanding of the business. They provide some examples such as the development, attraction, and engagement and retention of the employees. Now, it's interesting. These apply to any filing that's subject to Regulation SK, such as 10K and S1 filings, But there's been no definition of human capital for these rules, no list of required measures to disclose. It is a principles-based disclosure requirement, and so it should be tailored to the company and may evolve over time as things change. And so a company really needs to consider the materiality of certain measures or metrics to its own business. Perfect. And I think that question of materiality, even when you were starting things off, of course, immediately comes to mind is what do we mean when we say material? And that's something we did talk about in more detail, as well as some of the other nuances in our original recording. So I don't want to spend too much time on that today. And I will put a link in the show notes so our listeners have that handy. But I'm really curious about focusing on now is not so much what's required, but what we actually saw. So Sheree, I know your team has done a study of many of the filings. So very curious if you want to give us a quick summary of the study and then maybe some high level findings. Yeah. I mean, kudos to the team. We through the February 28th filings, they, they reviewed about 2000 100 filings um, since the rules became effective. Um, And so this includes um, all the large accelerated filers that had to file um, by the end of February. Um, And some interesting kind of themes, and we certainly saw the evolution of the filings from those that we reviewed and discussed in our earlier podcast to today. You know, starting off, I I think table stakes is around employee demographics. And as, as Brandon said, companies are required to disclose the number of employees. Um, And so we consistently saw companies do that. But at the same time, we also saw companies disaggregate the information um, and be able to talk about kind of either geographic distribution or different job function, different management levels, um, as well as regular and and part-time employees. So certainly saw companies go a little bit deeper than maybe they had had in the past. I think that the next um, kind of biggest topic that we saw, and, and, and quite honestly, it was actually a tie between two, um, was around diversity and inclusion and employee life cycle. 
And diversity and inclusion in particular was one, um, if we think about our past podcast, was not low, but it was uh, kind of lower in terms of the priority. And so we certainly saw that number pick up such that um, about 89 to 90%, so substantially all in accounting terms of the S&P 100 discussed uh, diversity and inclusion. From an employee lifecycle perspective, and so when we say that, we're talking about hiring, recruiting, learning and development. We similarly saw substantially all the companies talk about that in various kind of shapes and forms. I would say largely qualitative, particularly, you know, companies who have stated um, kind of goals around um, hiring and retaining being kind of critical to their business. And so we, we saw, you know, we saw some companies talk about succession planning, which I thought was very interesting, um, you know, very much focused um, and aligned to DNI and, and what their process is to thinking about what future leadership of their of their companies look like. Um, but still, I would say overall, we saw the, the disclosures be largely more qualitative than quantitative. Um, I would say the area that we saw maybe the most quantitative, albeit still not um, the majority is, is around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay, so then a um, couple questions, and I want to come back to your DEI comment. But one thing on the employee life cycle, so you mentioned that it was mostly qualitative, and this is truly going to be just impression from you, because I don't think there's a way to do this scientifically. But when you say qualitative, are you talking like they did one sentence on each part of that life cycle? Or did you typically see like very robust conversations? Or it's like, obviously, anything in between? Yeah, I would say it was generally a couple sentences where they talked about um, hiring, recruiting practices, um, learning and development. Um, so it was, it was certainly a, a qualitative discussion as opposed to just a civil statement around, you know, recruiting as a top priority for our company. Because I would imagine this is a place for any of these qualitative disclosures, really starting to build them out as you go forward and start to see, I guess, what the market's looking for, et cetera, because given how important talent is, that employee life cycle obviously seems like a key. But I do want to come back to your point on diversity and inclusion. And, you know, I know last time we spoke, it was so interesting because the number was a little lower than we anticipated. Still not a bad number, but only about 46% of companies hit that. And so now when you're looking at the 1231 filers, what types of numbers did you see and any other observations? Yeah, so we th- saw it go up to around 66%. Now, remember, when we're talking about the companies that we evaluated, it's both small public companies that filed through February 28th, as well as our large public companies. When you start to look down at the S&P 500 or the S&P 100, those percentages start to get you know, much higher, closer to the, the 90 plus percent of, of those large companies um, disclosing around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then when you even look at the industry level, you start to see even more variations by industry around, you know, what they viewed as kind of their, you know, material issues, um, in particular, kind of what the priority was around around DNI. So then specific to sectors, what did you see? And in particular, I'm from the power and utility sector, and I think you had some interesting findings there um, in a positive light. Yeah, so um, utilities and insurance were probably the two sectors that we saw DNI disclose most frequently. Um, so, like more than eighty percent of the disclosure reviewed in, the, in this industry had D- DNI. Um, so, I would say that was probably the highest out of all the sectors that we saw. So, quite impressive to to your sector. 
On the other hand, we saw banking and capital markets only discussed it about 38% of the time. Um, and we know just in, in reading articles and, um, and attending you know, various kind of diversity, equity, inclusion um, type discussions that banking, capital markets, financial services is one area that's, you know, one sector that's really focusing on these issues. And so, um, you know, as, as I said in the previous podcast, um, you know, I think there's going to be an evolution of these disclosures. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I'm hopeful that we'll start to see more in the banking capital market space. Um, and that could also be an indicator of the size of the companies. Again, a lot of these percentages could be skewed depending upon how many um, smaller companies they may have in the sector um, that um, are in different points of the maturity scale around a topic such as diversity, equity, inclusion. And then any other specific sort of sector findings that you would highlight? What the top three topics disclose really did vary by, by sector. So when we think about the employee life cycle disclosure that I mentioned before, um, industrial products, tech, and consumer market were the, the three sectors that, that had it within the top three topics discussed. And so no surprise when you think about those sectors, in particular tech, where there is kind of that hunt for top talent and to retain top talent, that that would be something that they view as being a material issue that they want to disclose. Similarly, when you think about health and safety, um, you know, no surprise that the sectors that talked about um, that the most and put in the top three issues were utilities, chemicals, engineering, industrial products, all of the sectors that you would expect to have quite a big focus around around that topic. And then total rewards. I think, you know, again, I don't know if there's too much surprise that you that you would see health and pharma life science. Um, you have total rewards being something um, of, of importance, right, given given the sector that they operate in, right? And when we talk about total rewards, it's not only compensation, but it's also benefits. Media and entertainment was also one that we saw, you know, total rewards discussed in, in, in quite a bit of frequency. So it was certainly interesting to see the variations, um, but also kind of the similarities within the companies within a sector. And as I reflect on the conversations that we had leading into the disclosures for our 1231 filers in particular, many companies want to know, like, what are my peers going to say, right? I, you know, I, I want to be a leader, but I also don't want to be an outlier. So um, I think there's going to be a lot of learnings coming out of this disclosure and, and again, be able to see it evolve for the next time. And in something in particular, you would expect that some of these disclosures are more leading practice in terms of, you know, seeing some of the larger companies making the DEI disclosures. I agree. And I think it also depends on the direction that the SEC ultimately takes around um, these disclosures and what type of feedback that they're going to provide to companies through the comment, you know, comment letter process or through speeches. And we're already seeing, um, you know, the SEC ask questions around climate, right? And I suspect that we'll start to see a similar trend um, once the dust settles around these human capital disclosures. All right, great perspective there. So then, Brandon, let me turn back to you. And again, like to benchmark against something we saw in the earlier discussion, which is that with the early filers, one of the biggest impacts that we talked about was the impact that COVID-19 was having on human capital management. And in particular, I think you had seen about 95% of filers you know, through the end of December, I guess, when we did that study, had disclosed the impact of COVID-19 on human capital. So are we still seeing that now or a trend away from that? Yeah, well, we are still seeing disclosures around COVID and the impact, although opposite of what we saw around DEI, there was actually a decline in the number of registrants that were disclosing the impact from COVID. 
interestingly, the consumer market space in that industry, uh, we only saw 55% of those uh, filers actually disclosing something around uh, COVID. So we saw a decline in those. We can only speculate as to why this dropped, not entirely sure, but our expectation is a lot of the large filers that we've now seen after year end were ones that were generally deemed essential businesses, right? And while they had to deal with COVID, it was not ultimately a, a material aspect of running their business last year with respect to human capital. Or they found a way around it potentially, right? So <laughs> one way or another, they were able to work through it. And, and maybe I'm just going to be optimistic here that maybe it is a little sign of optimism that will become less important. So I know that's pure speculation, obviously. Um, so Brandon, one other question then, going back to something Sheree said, which was talking about quantitative and qualitative human capital measures or disclosures. You know, from your observations on the filings, what would you say in terms of the mix? Obviously, again, understanding that people are very interested in knowing what others did. Well, the majority of filings did include both qualitative and quantitative disclosures, about 89% of what we saw. You know, the industry that had the least amount of these were the banking and capital markets companies, where they had, you know, less disclosures on the quantitative side than compared to other industries. The general expectation from the SEC is that disclosures would include both, right, in general around those. Now, it wasn't a specific aspect of the rule that you had to, but as you read into the rule a little bit, it was generally an expectation that you include both quantitative and qualitative disclosures. Uh, we did see the disclosures actually uh, lengthen over time with the additional filings. And from what we saw, about 49% of the time, disclosures were a half page or longer at year end. And that jumped up to about 70% of the time with a more recent review of those filings. And would you say that could have something to do with the fact that it was some of the, the larger filers potentially? Or again, it's too, you know, we're just seeing the data. It's hard to figure out what's driving some of these trends. My speculation is the larger filers that have more refined and actionable human capital plans around attraction and retention, they had more things to talk about. And with them, it was generally a matter of narrowing down what they thought was material, but they had plenty to disclose. And then, Sheree, from your kind of review of the data and what we saw, any other key observations that you would highlight? Yeah, so we, we hit on um, safety and total rewards a bit as we talked about the sectors. But I think the other thing that we saw a bit of that I know we had a lot of discussions with companies about leading into the disclosure was around employee engagement. And, you know, we know many companies do poll surveys to kind of understand, you know, how their employees are feeling, the level of inclusivity within an organization. And we, again, we saw some companies who touched on it, but certainly more in a qualitative manner as opposed to quantitative. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how that, how that evolves, right? You would think that if, um, human capital and talent management is viewed as being a material issue for, um, for, for your company that you would also want to articulate, um, you know, the actions that you're taking to, um, you know, manage employee engagement and satisfaction. So, um, certainly an area of, of, of opportunity there for, for companies. I think the other thing to kind of step back and reflect on is that, um, as Brandon said at the top, um, the disclosures were required for areas that were material to a company. And so, now companies have, have gone on record with stating what's material to them and looking at the percentage of companies that have indicated um, diversity, equity, inclusion are important uh, or material issues or you know, talent attraction. It's really going to be what happens next. Um, what progress are we going to make through those 
um, called implicit commitments through these disclosures. If it's a material issue, you don't want to be stagnant. You want to be able to show progress. And so um, I'm excited to see, you know, what the, what the next round of disclosures look like and the progress that we start to make on those topics. Well, and to the point you made earlier, then you referenced that it'll be interesting to see how the SEC weighs in and that, how that might influence things. So, Brandon, maybe I'll go back to you and just curious if we've seen any early response from the SEC, you know, maybe on some of those earlier filers. So far, we've only seen a handful of SEC comments, and they really seem to be directed uh, at filers that did not try to comply with the disclosures. Really boilerplate at this point, asking those certain filers to actually look at the rule and understand that there are now expanded disclosure requirements and it's no longer just the number of employees. So they seem to be rather boilerplate comments at this point we're receiving from the SEC. Obviously, you know, as we talked about, it is a principles-based rule. We could see some other comments from the SEC, but you know, it's a, an interesting thing. Our general observation in talking with a lot of uh, companies who are going through this process of identifying the material disclosures is that Companies were successful in generally identifying what they thought was material. They also looked at it and said, and we're doing a number of things. We have a number of programs that may help with these material aspects of managing human capital. But then you take that a step further. Uh, some companies have looked at that and said, and we know it's material because we've asked our employees, we've done surveys on that point. But that's probably you know fewer companies than I would say out of the bunch that have filed is there's not that direct connection between what they found as material and the programs they have. A lot of disclosures simply listed both of those without explaining, we believe these programs we have uh, have an impact on the metrics and measures that we're tracking, right? And some qualitative discussions, and those were good on that topic, but also very limited on the quantitative side. So we do expect companies will be focusing more on being able to explain how their actions, right, how their programs, whether around DE&I or total rewards have an impact on attraction or retention, for example, or then ultimately being able to put quantitative disclosures in place to say our actions with respect to the programs we have in place actually reduced our attrition rate by 2% or 3%, whatever that is, but being able to quantify and explain to shareholders what the quantitative impact of their actions have had. So, Brandon, just going back to the SEC comment that some companies seem like they didn't include anything on this. And obviously not every company is PwC where human capital is, you know, our number one asset. But on the other hand, I was just trying to think of a company that it would be like there's no aspect of human capital that's important. And so how do we think about that? Have you seen companies able to address those comments or again, it's too soon to tell? Uh, I think it's too soon to tell. I think with some of the disclosures we had looked at in reviewing uh, the filings, some of them maybe didn't notice there was a new rule and simply disclosed we have this many employees, this many contract you know, workers, and potentially had an oversight in the filing. Um, and some were just so brief that they didn't really comment on what measures or metrics might be material with respect to human capital. And so then from, well, but actually, Shuri, I'll go back to you for this. I know we've been working with a lot of companies, you know, implementing these rules. And to the point you made, everyone's going to be looking around at what everyone else did. But from your perspective, if I am a company that's in that position, looking at others, what are some of the key things people should focus on right now? Yeah, so I think the first thing we've received so many questions around, like, what's the best? What's a leading practice around the disclosure? And the 
The reality is that there's not one size fits all. Every company is different, even within a sector, um, may have you know different material issues based off of how they operate. And so it's hard to kind of say like, this is the best disclosure, model it after that, right? So it really is a thoughtful process that um, we encourage companies to go through in determining what those material issues are. Um, but then it really becomes a question around around the data and the availability of the data to make the disclosures. And so we did see, um, to the extent companies were disclosing quantitative information, a lot of times it was at a very aggregated level. In working with companies, um, a lot of that's driven by you know we, we need to do more to feel more comfortable with the data that we're gonna, that we're going to disclose, right? So. Giving the example of, of DNI, um, for example, you know, many companies are starting to think about self ID campaigns, right? So they may not have been able to feel comfortable going to a level of disaggregation where they disclose further race and ethnicity for their U.S. employees, as an example, because they didn't have that information or they weren't confident with the information that might have been within their um, HR management system. And so for that reason, companies are saying, okay, well, we want to be able to be more transparent. Um, within our 10K disclosures or otherwise. And so starting a process to, to gather that information. You know, similarly with you know, disaggregation by geography, I think that's going to be where, you know, companies are going to look at what their peers are doing. Again, business models are different, even though you're in a similar sector. And so I, I don't know that we're going to see ultimate consistency, but I do think we'll get to a point where um, hopefully we'll start to see more data being disclosed to, to give investors more insight into these uh, into the material topics that they're that they're managing. And then I one question on that self-identification, because I, I know there's also a view from some employees that this is like private, I shouldn't have to share my sexual orientation with my employer or even my ethnicity or some of the things we're kind of more used to sharing. So are you seeing a lot of pushback or hearing from companies a lot of pushback or even so it's worth asking the question because this data is important to investors and others? Yeah, so it's definitely a topic that um, many stakeholders within the company are considering, right? Legal ramifications that may occur, um, but there's also on the on the other side the data insights that you have there. And thinking about the more access you have to the data, the better you can start to define and align your strategies to fit your your employee base. And so there are definitely kind of pros and to some extent cons around gathering this information. And a lot of it really is around the communication strategy with, with these campaigns and making sure that um, your employees understand the why um, that you're collecting, how the information is going to be used um, so that people don't get the sense that it's going to be used against them, but rather it's to benefit um, the organization to create, you know, continue to create equal opportunities for everyone at the company. Yeah, it definitely seems like something I think the continued conversation about, and clearly to your point, not something to take on lightly, definitely not trying to say not to do it, but just to consider your employees, how it's going to be, um, how they're going to respond and probably that you don't want to have to go back to them multiple times. So if you're going to do this, design it properly and do it right the first time. Great point. Um, okay. So then where do we go from here? I know we've talked about a lot of different things. Definitely sounds like more to come just in the evolution of these rules. But then one thing we've been talking about more broadly on the podcast series is just some of the changes at the SEC, change in administration. And do we expect to see more? Or if you had to look in your crystal ball, I'm sure, what do you, what do you think? 
Yes, I love looking at that crystal ball. Um, as many of you know, when the when the human capital disclosures was put out for comment um, and and issued, um, Acting Commissioner um, Allison Heron Lee actually dissented to it because she didn't think that um, the, the disclosures went far enough in terms of creating transparency and, and potential consistency amongst uh, amongst constituents. And then since then, I think we've seen, you know, heard a lot from her around ESG, right, particularly around climate. But, you know, within um, a speech um, that she recently issued, it also talked about um, needing to think about diversity, equity, inclusion and human capital further. So I think that coupled with the Biden administration continue to be focused on racial equity having uh you know regulators as well as Nasdaq, you know, continuing to kind of push on um getting greater insight into board diversity. Um I think we're gonna move to a place where there's going to be more disclosure, particularly around um DNI, but I think naturally it comes down to um you know what's the tie back to the overall human capital strategy and management. So um my crystal ball would say that we're that we're gonna be getting there um in, in the upcoming years. Um, and so as I've talked to our clients, it's really about being prepared for that. The data journey is often a long journey to ensure that you understand kind of where the data originates and all the different mechanisms that it goes through in order to get to um, being ultimately reported. And similar to what we see from a financial reporting perspective, what are the process controls, policies that are in place to ensure that what you're ultimately putting out into the public, whether it's in a 10K or corporate responsibility report or human capital report, whether that's investment grade data. And that process and journey takes some time. It's not something that you you are able to identify and complete in a three-month period of time. And so I've encouraged you know, the clients that we've been working with to start it now so that they're prepared um, if and when the SEC requires more from them. Well, so that was actually such a good point. And as you were talking, I was thinking, we touched on this in different ways, but if you are meeting with a controller now or you know someone responsible for these disclosures, some combination of HR and uh, you know others, what are some of the best practices? What should they be thinking about? Putting aside that the rules might even get more robust, but just, okay, you got through this year, now you have nine months, how should you start thinking about next year? I guess starting off is making sure you have the right stakeholders at the table, right? So financial reporting drives what goes in the 10K, but human capital and HR um, are the ones that have access to the data. And, and many times they may not have an appreciation for the concepts that financial reporting and internal audit um, kind of deal with from a financial perspective. And so I think there's that education process that we're seeing um, many, many of our clients go through. And then it really comes down to once you've landed it on the metrics that you feel like you want to disclose. Um, so we've been talking to companies about thinking, thinking through the different ESG frameworks that exist, the different rating agencies, doing peer assessments to kind of understand um, you know, what others may be doing and, and then prioritizing the metrics is then understanding the quality of the data. Um, and that's where, you know, being able to engage with um, your enterprise risk management groups, your internal audit groups that have done this in so many other kind of, you know, scenarios can really help inform um, inform you around what you, what you can and are ready to disclose and where the 
risks may be and then developing the, the strategy to mitigate those risks or close the gaps or remediate the gaps, I should say, so that you're ready to um, have the disclosures that you think are important to telling your, your story. Yeah, because it sounds like you don't want your story to be driven by the data, but instead you want to figure out what your story is and then make sure you have the, the data to support it. Exactly. All right. Well, really appreciate the insights from both of you. I have a semi-human capital related question to wrap things up. And uh, this is actually a playoff of a question we asked in our quarterly webcast. But what I'd like to ask you is what your worst job prior to PwC was. And so if you guys want to think about a second, I can say mine. So this may be surprising. So I was an accountant, an intern in an accounting department for a company between my uh, third and fourth years of college. And it was terrible. I, you know, I didn't find it interesting. I didn't really like the people I was working with. And I kept thinking like, why did I pick this as a career? Now, obviously I got over that. It worked out and I've been at PwC since I graduated from college, but uh, definitely was not a great summer job. So how about Sheree, I'll go to you. Well, that's a tough one because I would say that I haven't had um, a bad job. I worked for a retailer when I was in in high school and and through college, and I loved it because I got the employee discount on clothes, right? So I felt like I was always very well-dressed. So I I really can't complain about that experience. I guess I've been fortunate to just work in a lot of great places that that I've loved. No, that's a great answer. And actually, I worked as well in retail when I was in high school. That job, I loved. So <laughs> it was the accounting job I wasn't so sure about. Um, so Brandon, how about you? You know, it's interesting. I, I reflect the same way Cherie does and say I've had a lot of great jobs. I worked with my dad growing up and worked at a grocery store. But I was recalling, as you asked that question, a very short stint, maybe about three weeks working at a call center when I was in college. And that was very short-lived, I think, for a reason. Yeah, that does not sound like like a fun job. It's very nice to hear that everyone has had such good pre-PWC work experience. So anyway, really, as always, appreciate the insight and sounds like we have more to talk about in a future podcast. So thank you. That does it for today. Join me back here every Tuesday for new episodes on all things accounting and reporting. And on Thursdays, join me for our Forecast 2021 mini-series. This week, we're asking the question, what's really happening in China and what does it mean for your business? So that you never miss an episode of any of our podcasts, follow the series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.